As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. <laughs> All right. Good morning. Welcome back or welcome to whether you're watching us live on the This Is Bracket Racing Facebook page, whether you're listening on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast. This is week two of our Throwback Thursday series. Uh, week one was a lot of fun. We got a lot of good feedback. Joining me once again, uh, Mr. Kevin McKenna, savant, historian of drag racing, longtime senior editor at National Dragster. Kevin, how are you today? I'm doing well. Good afternoon here in the East, but still good morning in your part of the country, even though we're we're not that far apart. Yeah, no, we're cutting it close. We're cutting it close. Um, not really Not really much has changed here in the last week. I'm still sheltering in place in Illinois. Our governor actually extended the stay-at-home order through the month of May, which is one of the more aggressive states to this point. Uh, what about on your end? Anything different? Not, no hard news yet. Uh, we're supposed to get news tomorrow from the governor. It's expected, uh, if I had to guess, I would say we're going to get extended for at least two weeks. So you're probably looking at May 15th. I mean, I think some businesses will open soon, but it, as with most governments, it's going to be a phased in deal. And it just seems like uh, we're going to be at least a couple weeks as far as the drag racing front. I know here at Lucas Oil Raceway, we had an event scheduled for this weekend. Unfortunately, it's had to be pushed back to, uh, as of right now, May 22nd weekend. So fingers crossed that uh, that actually happens. I know there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes to make it happen, to work with local and state governments to do everything you need to do uh, in order to open. So let's just hope for the best on that front. Yeah, no, we actually, uh, Jed and I addressed this on the, on the regular show this week, which released yesterday. We recorded Monday night, and when we recorded, there was a pretty significant sense of optimism, at least in the bracket racing ranks, I guess more specific to the Southeast than anything that uh, we're gonna be able to get back to the racetrack sooner than later. And while that is the case in certain areas, I think um, almost universally, perhaps now, just two days later, it looks as though a lot of that optimism might've been just a little bit premature um, as you know, the, the, the 
the, the state is opening up or the economy is reopening yeah. on the first, but the, the actual details of that don't necessarily allow us to go out and do what we love just yet. Hopefully it's in the till, but uh, not, not as immediate as many were hoping. Yeah, it's, I mean, we, we got to be getting closer. Uh, I mean, obviously this has gone on, I think, much longer than any of us expected it to. Um, I don't know. Anyone who tells you they know what's going to happen is, uh, is a fool. Uh, so we'll just, you know, continue to be patient, hope for the best. And um, I imagine once we finally do get back to the racetrack, you're going to see a lot of ho hopefully happy and grateful people that uh, don't ever take for granted what we've had before. No doubt. If, if there is one good thing to come of this, it should definitely make us appreciate what we have once we are able to get back to what we love. No question. All right. To the subject at hand, um, last week yeah. we talked about 2005, and within these Throwback Thursday segments, if you're new to it, our thought process is to go back in time at least a decade and talk about that year's events, kind of as a whole, but obviously with a focus on uh, drag racing and, and specifically sportsman drag racing, as if it were happening now, you know, as, as if we were just removed from the moment. And I don't know about you. Time has a funny way of, or, or maybe our, maybe a better way to say it is our memories work in odd ways. Because I think I had mentioned last week when we were talking about 2005, man, some of this stuff feels like it happened yesterday and some of it feels like it was a whole different yeah. lifetime. For me, as I look through our notes for 2006, I can't believe this was 14 years ago. Like this yeah. stuff feels like yesterday by and large. Yeah, and, and as you get older, I hate to inform you, the problem gets a little worse. I mean, <laughs> there was a time when I could remember almost every detail of any event that I ever went to or significant news event, and now th th they all run together. You know, the, the research that I had to do for this, we're not pulling this all from memory. A lot of this is going back through some files, some notes, and, um, you know, once you do that, it rings a bell. You kind of, oh, yeah, I remember that day I was there, but to, to, to just pull it up from memory. It just doesn't happen as much anymore. Um, but yes, to, to, to your point about 14 years, there's some things on here that I think, wow, I, I remember that, like you said, like it was yesterday. So. Yeah, no, just to, uh, to kind of set the table as the time frame. some interesting notes and, you know, uh, news from the world in 2006, let's hear that Saddam Hussein was captured and then ultimately hanged. Um, Former President Gerald Ford passed away at the tail end of the, of the year in uh, December 26th. Uh, I remember it being really hot. I do remember that part. So summer <laughs> yeah. heat wave reached, reached dangerous levels. So mm -hmm. that, was no, uh, that was no surprise. And then interesting fun fact, uh, and this one seems like just a couple of years ago to me, but the 2006 is the year the crocodile, crocodile hunter died. Yeah. Steve Irwin yeah. went down. I don't know if I'd call that a fun fact. No, but no, no, I didn't. Yes, yeah. But yes, it, it was a tragedy. <laughs> it, it was surprising. Um, yeah, I mean, that, and, and if you do remember, that was a hugely popular television show. He was a very popular figure in pop culture. And you just wake up one morning and say, I can't believe he's gone. And then the way it happened to be stung by a stingray, just shocking. Just one, one of those things that makes you uh, not want to take any day for granted. No doubt. We look back through some of the sports stories from uh, 2006 as well. The Steelers won the Super Bowl over the Seahawks. Mm -hmm. uh, my St. Louis Cardinals were your uh, World Series champions over the Yankees. Yeah, that I don't I remember. Like the Cubs that I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Wait another decade. We'll get there. 
<laughs> this was the the pre-LeBron Miami Heat. This was the D Wade. Wasn't Shaq a, a small player on that team? I think 2006. That sounds sounds right. I'm not a huge follower of basketball, but I um, that that all seems correct. Miami Heat over the Dallas Mavericks in the NBA Finals. Kobe went for 81 one game. Yeah, that that, that I remember living in LA. I mean, it was huge news everywhere, but um, that was monumental. Because if I'm not mistaken, is that not the second highest total ever behind Wilt's 100? I believe nobody's in, come in between there, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so that's even though you're, you're 19 points back of Wilt, that, you know, I mean, a 50-point game is monumental. To go off for 81, um, you must have had the ball every, every possession and, and not missed many shots. Be interested to know what his percentage was in that game. No doubt he shot plenty, but he made most yes. of them. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You, as, the, as the hockey aficionado, I'll let you bring us up to date on uh, the Stanley Cup from 06. This uh, is the year after the strike, it, right? It is. And, and to come back, you know, my, my Tampa Bay team won it in 04. There was known in 05. And then 06, it goes back to the Sun Belt. Carolina Hurricanes beat the Edmonton Oilers, which was huge because we have not had a Canadian team win the Stanley Cup since – I believe Montreal in 93. So it's, and that dry spell continues to this day, which, you know, for our Canadian friends that uh, invented the game, that that's got to be excruciatingly painful. Um, we had a few other things. The Italians won the world cup, which was held in Germany. And you know how Europeans are about their football. Um, I can only imagine the, the celebration in that part of the world. Um, I know living in LA in 94, when world cup was there, you got a sense of what a really, really big deal that was. The streets of Pasadena were just flooded, and the, the national pride between the Brazilians and the Colombians and the Europeans was, was really amazing. Um, a couple of things, Barry Bonds broke Hank Aaron's home run record. Um, you know, th this was post – I mean, th this was kind of at the tail end of, of the, the steroid era. Yeah, but, you know, it but might be just a little tainted. But. It, it is, I'm, I'm sure, but – you know, it would be interesting to know how many home runs he was going to hit anyway. Certainly, he was going to put up a monster total. Um, then the Florida Gators, uh, first the back-to-back -back, uh, national championships. Yeah, I, I was all geared up for this because I thought that's the year I went to the Final Four, but I'm pretty sure it was the next year when they beat the Buckeyes in the Final. Oh six, uh, uh, also the year that George Mason made that Cinderella run to the Final Four, so mm -hmm. you may remember that as well. And, uh, and my Salukis made the tournament. I was actually – I was same thing. I was fired up. I got my years mixed up. I was thinking that was the Sweet 16 year. That's actually the 06, 07 season, which so, – so, so that would that would have been the year that your office secretary won the pool because she liked the George Mason mascot, right, and picked them to go three rounds <laughs> further than Villanova. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. With, uh, with Jim Laranega at the helm. Mm -hmm. um, just some movies to kind of set the stage. Pop culture from 2006. That's the year that Talladega Nights was released. Again, I remember seeing that in the theater. I don't think it was 14 years ago. Um, Billboard charts. I don't remember this one, but Shakira was up there with Hips Don't Lie. I, just, yeah. I had to throw that in. Hips Don't Lie, right? Well, um, Super, Super Bowl last year. You, you, we got a nice uh, review of that. <laughs> uh, Jesus Take the Wheel from Carrie Underwood topped the country charts. News and notes from the world of country music. Kid Rock and Pamela Anderson got married for the third time in 2006 and then subsequently got divorced for four months later. Uh, Nickelback and Red Hot Chili Peppers topped the rock charts. 2006, let's throw it back. Kevin, where were you? Did much change from 2005 to 06 in your world? Um, not much. St still living in LA, still uh, working, you know, every day for National Dragster, traveling, doing 
eh, the bulk of the national events, probably 14 to 16 a year would, would have been my typical thing. Um, at home, uh, I did, uh, back in 01, I bought what was my first serious muscle car, a 70 Roadrunner, and that became about a 10-year project to turn that into kind of a street strip car. And by 06, I think we'd made really good progress on it, where it was probably a mid-11-second car that you could drive almost anywhere. And um, that was a lot of fun. So, so th those sort of things were... Uh, on the weekends when I wasn't traveling, I'd, I'd be messing around with it. Nice. When I think back to 06, initially, like A, 2006 was complete all-in racing for me, 06 and 07 both. This was post-Huntsville engine, pre-this-is-bracket racing, like I was racing for a living and ate, slept, breathed, it didn't care about anything else, mm -hmm. right? So it was all racing all the time. And I look back on that time and specifically this season fondly, and then I was going through the, the, the notes that we have here to discuss, mm -hmm. and it jogged some memories specific from the bracket races at the time. And I got really depressed because I was like, I, heard, I just remembered heartache after heartache after heartache at these events. And I'm like, man, I thought that was a good time. So I'm not going to turn in the, this into the, the Luke Bogacki autobiography, but as we go through, I'll share some of those because in retrospect, that was a rough year. <laughs> <laughs> NHRA Pro Ranks, this is more in your domain. Walk us through 2006. The, the list here basically begins and ends with the last run of the last race of the year, which was that amazing day where Tony Schumacher basically steals the world championship from Doug Kalitta with the run. Um, and, and to set the stage for that, come into the final race, um, the, the final round, Schumacher in the Army car has to run Melanie Troxel, who was running really well. She'd already won two national events that year. He not only needed to win the race, but he needed to set the national record. Now, it's possible that happens at Pomona. You got a downhill track, you have good air, but uh, I actually went and, and researched this. The national record at the time, and I remember this was quarter mile, was 4.437. In qualifying, Tony was quickest, uh, 4.458. So he was still a couple hundreds off the record. In the semis, he'd run 448. So he's chasing 500s going to the final. Now you've got another problem because back then you still had the 1% backup. Tony had to basically run quicker than the record, 4.437. But if he happened to go quicker than 4.404, he would have been too quick to have a backup. <laughs> so, so you had all these crazy scenarios. And, and I can remember us being in the tower thinking, well, what if he loses on a hole shot? How are you going to explain that? What all these crazy things that, that could have happened. And honestly, I think most of us expected, you know, we knew they were going to go for it. That That's not, you know, Alan Johnson was the crew chief. His style was not just to lay back and take whatever it gives you. That car was either going to set the record or it was going to go three feet and blow the tires off. And most of us, I think, expected the latter. Well, as we've all seen the video, uh, he goes out there, goes 442.8, nails it right dead center to win the race, win the championship, which um, was the third of six straight. And, um, you know, the thing I remember from that is the video of poor Doug Kalitta down there watching from the finish line. And you can pretty much read his lips. You can't repeat what he said, but you can pretty much read his lips to, to know the disappointment of that run. But, but in all honesty, that's probably – if that's not on anybody's list of one of the five greatest runs in drag racing, it's by any measuring stick, I think it would have to be there. No doubt. I mean, it, uh, it ranks right up there. I mean, you know, the Jordan documentary is so, 
so hot right now. You know, it's a shot to beat Cleveland. Like, mm-hmm. sure. the, honestly, the stakes were higher here for Schumacher. It was the run to win the world championship. It's amazing. I'm curious because you you gave a little bit of insight to it pre-race, but like among the media in the tower, mm-hmm. it sounds like there was some thought like if anybody could do this, it's it's AJ and Schumacher. But what did it yeah. even seem realistic that they would pull this off? Pre- I would I would think that the 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 vote among people in there it was probably split. I think there were some people thought it's possible, but most of us just thought. Just too many things had to happen. Right. What are the odds? You know, and, and again, I mean, even winning the final was not a slam dunk. Melanie's car was really good. And, you know, Pomona that time of the year, that time of the day, it, it can give you, you know, you're, you're probably going to have a great track, but if a little dew starts to come in. You, you know, there's a lot of variables there. I think my personal opinion probably was that if the car didn't smoke the tires, he was going to miss it by a few thou. I, I just didn't see, you know, 443 at the time was a pretty serious run. And again, you know, it, he hadn't been within two hundredths of it the entire event. So, but it, it just, I think it just shows you the, the, the genius that's Alan Johnson of you never put anything past him. Mm-hmm. And the, the drama of Pomona and the world finals, it's, it seems like the gift that keeps giving year after year after year. It, it, it does. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting to see that. The year after that, we would go to the um, the countdown format that's existed until this year. I think people pointed to that and said, you just had one of the greatest finishes in the history of drag racing. Why would you do that? But it, um, you know, it made sense at the time, given the changes in the points format. And I think what they really wanted to do was make sure you always had that sort of a finish. So. Yeah, and to your point, um... I had Jag on last Friday, mm-hmm. Jay Kaufman Jr., for yes. the, our story time segment. And we talked a little bit about basically the, the differences in his championships over the years from Supergas mm-hmm. to Pro Stock. But it was in 07, he won the, the first Pro Stock championship right. under the, the playoff format. Correct. And he's, the way that he spoke of that made it sound like that one was perhaps more special than any of them just because of the drama and how much of a long shot he personally was coming into that and come out of it. But to your point, it almost uh, guarantees not that you can replicate this 2005 ending or 2006 ending, right, right. but it almost guarantees drama basically in every category going yeah. into the one race of the year, which is exciting. Yeah. And, and you know, to Jake's championship in 07, if you remember the first year of the countdown, it was a graduated, it was a tiered structure where we went from eight to four and then down to the finals. I think it was the last two uh, that really didn't work like it was supposed to, but it still, it was a, a unique wrinkle that, that the teams had to adjust to. And, you know, the one interesting thing about Jag and his five pro stock championships, he's won one over almost every format that we've ever had, you know, whether it was a straight points deal over the year, that deal where it was tiered or just the countdown as we know it, where the last six races, um, you know, again, that just speaks to his versatility. Yeah, no question. He is the, uh, what do we call Brad Plourd last week? The Swiss Army the Swiss knife. Army knife, for yeah. sure. Jag qualifies for that. Absolutely. You put him in a shopping cart, he'll find a way to win. Uh, if you want to go into some more pro stuff, John Force wins the Funny Guard Championship that year, uh, the 14th of his 16 title. So that was, you can't even say it was the tail end of his run, because obviously he's competitive to this day. Um, Maybe not as dominant as he'd been in the 90s, but still really strong. Um, The KB team won their fourth straight pro stock championship, but this year 
it was not Greg Anderson who'd won in 04, 05, or 03, 04, and 05. Jason Lyon got his first, which, of course, he had also won the stock championship in, I believe, 93. Um, then uh, Andrew Hines wins uh, his third straight Pro Stock Motorcycle Championship for the Harley team. When you say all of that, and, and now looking back, you know, the next year was the first year for the playoffs. Every champion that you just mentioned was in the midst or at the end of long runs. Like there was, sure. obviously there was drama and top fuel, but there was necess not necessarily any surprise at the end of the year. I just wonder if that might've played a little bit into the thinking behind the playoff format as well. Mm, I suppose it's possible. I mean, they, they obviously didn't consult with me when they made those sort of changes, but um, what? <laughs> yeah. So it's surprising as it may seem, uh, yeah, do you, um, obviously the sport is healthier when you have parity, when you have more teams that can win. And this was a way not only to ensure drama at the end, but, but, you know, since then you look at some of the people that have won championships, some of the teams that have been in contention for championships until the end. And it's hard not to argue that, that, that hasn't been pretty good for the overall health. I mean, I know there's some people who don't feel that way. They don't like the countdown, but uh, I think if you factor in everything, the pendulum probably swings a little bit in favor of it. I think you could count me among the detractors initially because like everyone, like I just didn't like change. Mm -hmm. I, sure. For me personally, it's difficult now to look back and say that that wasn't a good move for the sport as a whole. But again, yeah. personal opinion. Uh, what other notes do we have from the pro side from 06? Okay, Matt. Well, it, it was... Um, it was a tough year uh, for specifically for, for pro stock racers. We lost a lot of famous names. Uh, in, in 2006 was the death of Dino Don Nicholson, Ronnie Sox, Malcolm Durham, and also young guy. We lost Scott Jeffrey on that year. Um, you know, th th those were real tragedies, you know, as the sport gets older, people, you, you know, you, you tend to lose a, a lot of your pioneers and celebrities, but um, that, that just seemed like a particularly tough run for us. Um, also, you had, uh, on a more positive note, the Driving Force TV show, John Force and the Family, debuted on the A&E Network, and that was actually a big hit. It, uh, it, it sort of moved the needle as far as helping to bring the sport to a more mainstream audience. Um, if you've never seen the shows, they were funny. John was John, um, usually entertaining, and uh, th that was a really good thing, and I, I would love for us to have another reality show featuring who knows, really anyone who's entertaining. I mean, you look at in the decade or the 15 years or so since, reality TV has taken over. There's very few scripted shows anymore. Now it's that it would be really nice to see a drag racing show front and center. We had another interesting thing in Atlanta, and I do remember this. Ron Capps decked Whit Bazemore in, in their pit area, and he was subsequently fined $10,000 for it. Um, which it's only really interesting because obviously people still, the deal with Steve Torrance and Cameron Foray is still somewhat fresh in people's minds. But for people who think there's a double standards, well, what if, you know, so, well, this was 15 years ago, you had a similar incident. This was not on TV. This was not in public view yet. There was still justice handed out. <laughs> so. I've got a, I've got a side project for you, K-Mac. Mm -hmm. I want to know one question for Ron Caps. Is he, mm -hmm. is he, does he regret that? Or was it the best $10,000 he ever spent? Uh, you know, you know what? I, I will, uh, I will text Ron this week and uh, <laughs> uh, next week when, when we, um, I'll get an answer. 
<laughs> as, as somebody, I think, uh, I don't remember who it was. Some of it says, I, I would have gone for the $20,000 fine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I honestly don't remember what was said to instigate that. But, but you know, you, you had two very different personalities there and, um, you know, two, two strong-willed individuals. And hey, sometimes in the heat of the moment, those things happen. Sure. Um, I saw in your notes here, uh, Eric Anders split with Cagnazzi and joined the DSR pro stock team with Gene Wilson at the time. I vaguely remember that. Yeah, th those were Dodge cars. You know, I, I mean, as we noted last week, Erica's career kind of took some interesting turns before she finally settled into a competitive ride that would uh, allow her to, to win. Um, but I think that was another stepping stone. I mean, I think by then she, people already knew they could see the talent there. It was just a matter of finding uh, the right fit. Um, some other things, Steve Torrance, a year removed from his alcohol dragster championship, um, jumps in, gets his top fuel license. And I believe he ran the last couple events of the year, maybe in a Morgan Lucas car. Um, but you, you could see that he was definitely headed for that. And of course, you know, it was a decade later, but you know, now he's, he's the hottest thing in top fuel. Um, something for me locally, Auto Club Dragway in Fontana opened, which if you know anything about Southern California, we, we, there's since the early 80s, there has been a real need for more drag strips. You know, Pomona, they can only run a couple times a year. You've got the small little eighth mile in Irwindale. They can't really have big events. Um, this was at least a facility where you could have a Lucas Oil Series event. You could have big bracket races. And thankfully, the management there saw enough potential in it. Uh, with, I know Auto Club, NHRA, I believe Lucas Oil all kind of worked on the project to make it happen. And anyone who's been there, the original track ran along the backside, or actually on the front side of the track, just in the parking lot. And then they built a little more permanent facility out back by the railroad tracks. And, you know, it's, it, it's not perfect, a little short, but um, if you live out there and you want a place to race, you, you know, you're happy to have it. Yeah, no, I don't know if you even knew this, but my introduction to, to drag racing, I was born in Southern California, and so my introduction yeah, I thought you were you're a native Texan. No, no, we moved there when I was uh, eight years old. Wow. So I remember going to the racetrack. My first memories going to the racetrack with my father were in SoCal, and it was all at racetracks that are no longer existent. It was Orange County. It was Riverside. Um, there's a place called Carlsbad. Sure. Uh, Los Angeles, L.A. County, you know, mm -hmm. none of which are, are running today. Right. Uh, I moved out there in 94 and the only one of those places I got to go to, I uh, went to LA County a couple times before they closed it. Uh, but by then, Orange County was gone. Carlsbad was gone. The original Fontana was gone. Uh, there just weren't many places. If, if you wanted to race, even just bring your streetcar out, you know, Bakersfield was a couple hours away. Uh, there were some, eh, maybe a handful of others, but none of them were convenient. So it, it was really nice to, uh, to have a drag strip within easy driving distance of the, the eight or 10 million people that live in LA. So. Uh, a couple other notes from the pro series. Uh, uh, if you remember back then, the, the Torco team with Evan Knoll was, was big. That was oh, that's a, year, a name from the past. Yeah. Yeah. He formed his funny car team. Um, seemed like was spending money, like it was going out of style. And yes. years later we figured out why. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then at Indy, that, that was in the middle. Um, also, Charlie Westcott won, not sure which, but I know he's won the Hemi Challenge at Indy about a half dozen times. That was in the middle of, of his dominance where, you know, that event had come back really strong. We were getting, you know, 20 to 25 cars. And it was really mostly just a, uh, a competition, I think, to see who could keep up with Charlie. And 
you know, he, he didn't lose many rounds there. <laughs> no, no, he did not. Uh, on the sportsman side, we'll start with the alcohol classes. Um, two icons, right? That obviously was not their only world mm-hmm. championship, but Bill Reichert and Alcohol Dragster and mm-hmm. Ace Manzo uh, recovered from a championship that he somehow didn't win the year prior. We talked about Bob Newberry mm-hmm. last week. Uh, Manzo got the championship in 06. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure Frank was very motivated. Don't remember how many events he won that year, but I'm sure it was his typical you know, he probably flirted with 800 points and at that um, uh, much more competitive battle, comp eliminator, Bo Butner held off Sal Biondo to win by nine points in comp. And if you remember, Bo was driving, um, not sure if he drove it the whole year, but the 200 mile an hour Cobalt, which, you know, he said that driving a pro stock car was a dream compared to that short wheelbase, you know, ill handling, you know, I mean, basically they took a super modified car and put a 2000 horsepower motor in it. What could go wrong? <laughs> but, but he did manage to keep it together long enough, win enough rounds, avoid CIC trouble and, and win the championship. Can you imagine trying to hit the bottom bulb and comp with something like that? Like, no, I, mean, I, I guess we talked a little bit about Brad trying to do it last week. Like that's gotta be a spot that doesn't exist, right? You, you, I can't hit the bottom bulb in my Mustang, much less. <laughs> so. But but yeah, to, to to do that, I, I don't I don't know what you do if you can put the biggest front tire on it. You can I, I don't know what the uh, what, what the answer is there. Maybe have a trans brake that that's slow. I don't Justin know. Lamb was actually telling me that you know you can get adjustable valve bodies that can slow things down pretty substantially but the issue that they ran into in specific to competition eliminator was to slow it down enough to get a light it was pretty dramatic because obviously when you actually let go of the button it releases the two-step so then you would have you know this (laughs) to the trans brake release so there's a fine line there where justin's explanation was you pretty much just got to wait for it you know which has got to feel so unnatural yeah Yeah, i you got me. Um, that, that, that's far beyond my realm of expertise. So, On the heels of his nearly perfect stock eliminator season that we, that we talked at length about last week in 2005, yes. Peter Biondo returned with a, a slightly more human performance that nonetheless netted a world championship in Superstock in uh, 2006 with a mere, as you put it on the notes, 677 points. By the way, no one else in Superstock that that season crested the 600-point barrier. Yeah, and, and 677 is a monster season. <laughs> Anyone would take it at any time. And for Pete, he was 120 points behind the previous year's pace. You want to say, Pete, what, what went wrong? <laughs> and, and obviously not much went wrong. But No, no, not much went wrong at all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in stock, we also had a great points battle. Uh, actually came down to a tie between Randy Wilkes and Tibor Kadar. They both had 622 points. Wilkes won the uh, via a tiebreaker, which that's happened a handful of times, but it's a pretty rare feat. Um, always feel bad for the guy that, that finishes second un, under that. You know, it's obviously not even around. It's probably some, some qualifying points or um, something that you think, you know, there, there had to be one thing that you could have done during the year that might have swayed that, um, you know, but and 622 is really kind of a, a low, low end score. Um, not you know, certainly not a bad year, but low end. Um, Super comp, Ron Irks, uh, a monster season, 686 points, pretty much mopped the floor in Super comp. Um, 
And then we had uh, Iggy Boychesco pulled off a great double. You win Indy, and then you go on and win the championship. Uh, he held off Rock Haas by eight points to win that championship in, uh, in Super Gas. Yeah, no, the, the Wilkes-Tabor, Wilkes-Tabor uh, finish was obviously an exciting one. And to your point on tiebreakers, and I guess kind of tying back into greatness, we talked about Peter Biondo. If I'm not mistaken, Scotty Richardson, five NHR World Championships, two, two correct. losses he's, on a tiebreaker. Yes, right? he's lost two tiebreakers, yep. I think it went to, it was to uh, Driscoll and Supercomp, and I believe to Ed Stout and Supergas. You have to check my, my memory on that one. But uh, that all sounds correct. <laughs> and uh, and Erks's uh, World Championship, like that's kind of forgotten just because he's out of the sport now, just how dominant that season was. And really his brief run – in NHRA Supercomp, obviously on the heels of the Dirty Dozen fiasco. I mm-hmm. feel like, at least for me as a racer, that was redemption for Irks because yeah. like there was no there was nobody going through more scrutiny at that point. Oh, you know, without it, a doubt. it was very obvious during that that phase at the very least, and we could argue the rest, I guess, um, that there was no funny business going on and he basically kind of showed his medal. Right. And, I, and just knowing Ron personally, I was happy for him, but at the same time, mm-hmm. it was an interesting story. Yeah. He would be a fascinating subject. Jed and I have talked about doing a, uh, like a where are they now segment, mm-hmm. especially sure. if Ron would come on with us and be open about all of his history, you know, and just his take on it. That would be a fun, fun show. I, I, I think it would be great. I actually ran into him uh, last year, the Hot Rod Power Tour came here through Indy. And he's got a, a cool wagon that he built, streetcar. And, and I think he's really just enjoying playing around with some street rods. But, but he, he seemed interested in, in what was going on in, in the NHRA world and out there. So I know he probably still keeps tabs on things. Um, and again, if, if he's willing to be straightforward about it, I think enough time has passed. It would be really nice to get some of that stuff out in the open just to have an historical perspective for it. Um, kind of the same thing with Dave Connolly. Once you got Dave into comp and then pro stock, you, you got to see his talent that this guy's a natural born winner anyway. So th- that kind of, you know, to your point, that sort of puts a little bit of that to rest, all the controversy that preceded that. Yeah, so, yeah I agree. Uh, if you want to move on with our sportsman stuff, um, there were some, some interesting things that happened. I forgot uh, all about this. Yeah. The, the, the sports nationals in Fontana, um, Super comp winner was Alexis DeJoria. Now, I had never met Alexis before this. had never heard of Tequila Patron. But I do remember being there at the winter circle when she rolled up and she pulled her helmet off. This was right after she got in her time slip. And she pulls off her helmet and says, well, that took long enough. And, and really, she'd been in super comp and super gas, maybe, probably not even a full season. Um, and, and I kind of thought, wow, you know, super comp's not exactly easy. Um, years later, I reminded her of that, and, and, and she thought it was kind of funny. But obviously, we've gotten to know her quite well to, to, to see where her history is and how motivated she was. And the thing I like about Alexis is she, she, she very much wanted to race a nitro car, but she wasn't going to do it until she was ready. So after she won in super comp, she went ahead about a year later, built an alcohol car, and said, I am not going, you know, she had the budget to run a nitro car, had all the means to do it, but was not going to do it until she won a race. Uh, It took her about three years, maybe four, to win. She won Seattle and Top Alcohol Funny Car, and then she started to make the move. She she just didn't want to do anything until she felt she was ready. And, um, you know, that's really a pretty admirable quality because 
you see a lot of people, as soon as they have the means, they rush right into things. And, you know, a lot of times it results in failure because you're not ready. And clearly she was smart enough to, to see the difference there and, you know, has had a pretty good career because of it. Um, some other notes, Dan Fletcher, seven wins, which is your typical Dan season for that era when he's going to most of the events. Um, it's funny, he, he finished well, I think top five in stock, but he was 30th in super stock. Imagine winning seven events. Now I know not all of them were in super stock, but at the time he was not a big fan of points meets, wasn't going to many. He pretty much focused on the national events. Um, you also had Heather Fetch, who was Heather Robolato at the time, wins Indy. Um, really the interesting thing about Indy, that was not an event that had had a lot of female winners prior to that. Shirley Muldowney won it in 82. Um, I believe Angel might have won it in the early 2000s, but as far as a sportsman champ, uh, we hadn't had one until um, Heather won that. Uh, we've talked about Jag. So Jag only won, won one race that year, and it was not a pro stock race. It was top dragster at the Jag's Cajun Sports Nationals in Belrose, which that obviously expanded his repertoire of things he could do. Um, you know, he, he'd won super comp races before, but um, uh, to jump in top dragster and just be able to be able to adapt. Uh, we had one double that year. That was David Rampy in Phoenix, comp and stock. It was the only double of the year. Wow. Yeah, two, two bottom bulb classes, but two very, very different cars. Um, and then towards the middle of the year, uh, you, you, you're probably familiar with this. We started hearing rumors about the Norwalk track, that they would jump ship to NHRA. It was really probably the worst kept secret in the sport. And then if you remember, the week before the U.S. Nationals was the last IHRA World Nationals there. And really, it was just a matter of waiting for the last two cars to go on the track before they peeled the sign down and, and, and put up the NHRA logo. But I remember... At Indy the following week, it was a big announcement that, you know, that we'd signed Norwalk. And uh, that was a significant thing because, unfortunately, it spelled the end of a traditional national event in Columbus, which, you know, that was an NHRA-owned track. So, I mean, I'm not privy to the business dealings that went on there. But if you can imagine NHRA giving up an event that it solely owns at one of its tracks for a partnership, um, obviously, they saw a lot of positives in Norwalk. And in the 14 years that have happened since, you know, Norwalk has become, uh, it, it's a very popular event for sportsmen. It has almost every class, you know, it does well with the fans. So uh, it's been a great addition to the Mellow Yellow series. Yeah, without question. Circling back to, uh, to Fletcher, one of my favorite Fletch quotes was chasing points takes all the joy out of drag racing or something to that effect. And, and, he, and he went on to say, it, it takes me, it takes me to uh, races that I don't want to go to at places that I don't want to be. <laughs> I remember Dan saying, uh, you know, he won his first championship early, but he, he, I think he more eagerly anticipated the second one because that meant he could haul two cars around the country, never had to worry about grade points again, could enter any national event at any time. And that, that was probably when he finally sealed the second championship. Uh, well, it was in comp. Um, I think that was probably one of the happiest days of his life. And, and I'm sure he would tell you that. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I'll, uh, I'll blow through the, the IHRA World Championships relatively quickly so that we can spend a little bit more time on the bracket stuff. Um, to your point, this is the year that Norwalk announced that they're switching over. 
in retrospect, probably began to signal the, the beginning of the downturn, or I don't want to say the beginning of the end. That seems a little sure. bit too precipitous, but uh, IHRA is certainly not what it once was. But in this time, it was going pretty hot and heavy. Uh, top sportsman champion was a name that we're all familiar with, uh, Marco Abruzzi. In top dragster, it was a name from the past. It was Brian Bennett. I remember that season. I remember Brian, um, Texas racer, which that's shortly after IHRA had really expanded to include that region of the country. He was the top dragster world champion over, you just, I pulled up the top 10 from that year and it is a who's who of racing legends. It was Steve Furr, Jason Lynch, Nick Folk, Brett Nesbitt, Jeff Ledford, you know, all in the top 10, all behind uh, Brian Bennett. In Superstock, Scotty Stillings won his second consecutive IHRA national championship and what at that time was his fourth overall. He'd won back-to-back titles in the 890 category, I want to say in the late 90s, and then back-to-back titles in Superstock. He ended up following that up almost a decade later in 2014 uh, with a fifth IHRA World Championship again in Superstock. Myron Pytek ran over the stock eliminator field in IHRA that year with a dominating performance. I want to say that that one was nearly wrapped up by July. He, he just came out on fire, kind of ran away with it. The Cohen-like performance. Yes, very Cohen-like, yes. And then uh, in the 890 category, Troy Williams Jr. made a pretty serious run at back-to-back titles there as well, ended up uh, getting overcome or overtaken just at the end by Forrest Lipke. Uh, Forest, Wisconsin-based racer, uh, longtime mm-hmm. friend of uh, of the folks. So I know that that name rings sure. true for a lot of us as well. Uh, Steve Furr, while I said finished in the top 10 in top dragster, was also the 990 world champion. Fuzz also got voted IHRA Sportsman Driver of the Year that season, one of several uh, Super Rod World Championships for the North Carolina mm-hmm. runner. In Hot Rod, the 1090 category, this was the Kenny Underwood year, uh, another dominating performance, which we wouldn't expect much less, um, but most people rightfully associate Kenny with his bracket racing dominance. There were a couple of years here where he kind of ran roughshod over the IHRA 1090 category. This was in the Anthony Bertozzi Camaro that had previously won world championships in Superstock. Uh, so that was Kenny's year. Another fun name, uh, as we go back in time, the IHRA Top Stock World Champion, Mr. Bo Kenny. I know you remember Bo from his brief NHRA tenure. I do. And uh, <laughs> yeah, who could forget, right? And um, in the the yes, Summit, yes, incredible. <laughs> the Summit Super Series uh, winners that year, JoJo Gary, my man JoJo, out of uh, South Carolina, was the winner in box. John Coyle from right here in the great state of Illinois, the uh, IHRA no box champion. It was a big year on the bracket ranks too. And this is what I wanted to fast forward to, because like I said in the intro, this was my almost exclusive focus in 2006. So a lot of this kind of rang true and, uh, and hit home for me as I think back on that season. Um, George Howard reopened Montgomery Motorsports Park, uh, which would ultimately become the, the home of the million dollar race, uh, for many years since, right? Um, so that was big. Right. I believe. I believe at the time. I believe at the time George was running three tracks in Alabama, right? He had Huntsville, he had Montgomery, and, and uh, was the Bama Birmingham, Bama, Bama Dragway. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so so he was pretty much the, the the man down there for you know for the better part of that decade. Um, I mean, between that and the B and M series and everything he did, um, yeah, the, the, that was a pretty pretty significant development and. Um, I think it says a lot to know that that Montgomery's still around and still the home of the million. And, yeah, 
no question. I've got a I've got a Bama Dragway story if you want to go back there. I've been there once, and it wasn't long after this. It was mm-hmm. probably might have been oh seven oh eight, and uh, I think I had gotten I'd gotten some word from someone local like, hey, just take the Vega, but there was a couple of racers mm-hmm. there with drag. It was so short. Like by that time, at least, obviously it was built in, a, in another age, but a really good racer by the name of Bruce Moat was there. There wasn't a ton of cars. It was a Drag Racers Old Series race as that series was kind of dying down, 08, 09 maybe. And, uh, and Bruce went down to the finish line and looked at me and he goes, what am I going to do? He had like a 470, 480 dragster. And I'm like, I wouldn't run that here, I don't think. Like, do what you want to do. So he ended up, I think he ended up winning the race. And he went, he went very deep in the race, just deadlifting at 3.30 and coasting the rest of the way because he was afraid he couldn't stop. <laughs> wow. I was going to say, I guess you could put a, put a throttle stop on there or do something, but I, I guess if, if you're confident in your spot dropping abilities, that's just as effective. <laughs> and you got plenty of override, so that's, that's how, that could be helpful. <laughs> you're going to get there first if you need to. <laughs> Uh, uh, John LaBoost Jr., $20,000 winner at Montgomery, uh, Mega Race, Adam Davis, winner in Footbreak, a couple of names that we're all pretty familiar with. Again, those are results from 2006. Sure. Uh, Tommy Plott and Alan Bird, uh, Carolina Coalition winners. Uh, again, no surprise there. Uh, see some results from Tentuck mm-hmm. here. There was a $100,000 race. This is a one-time deal. They called it the, the Mega 100. I believe it was a George Howard race at Memphis that uh, Jason Folt got the win over none other than Tricky Ricky Jones in the final. Add that to the long list of huge races that Ricky has been in the final of and, and really a pretty significant list of accomplishments for Jason Folt as well. And I was curious about that. Uh, being a George Howard race, I'm sure it paid the full 100. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what runner-up was or what the split might have been. Uh, I'm going to assume that much like the million, that race probably got cut up at eight cars or so. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have any insight on it or – I vaguely remember being there. I actually remember because it was unforgettable, um, Jason's victory celebration more than anything. The rest of it just kind of muddled together for me. So. <laughs> and I'll just leave, I'll leave that one to the imagination. No, no, giving a member of the folks family 100000 in cash is generally not a good idea. You should alert the authorities anytime that happens. <laughs> Uh, Jigs US Open, this is when it was really in its heyday. Um, Scotty Richardson, and this is a name that was very familiar in the big dollar bracket scene really throughout that time period, that decade, um, but specifically in 2006. Scotty Richardson started things off, uh, I believe the Jigs US Open was at Indy that year, although it may have been, I'm trying to remember this particular race. I think, I'm almost certain this one was at Indy. Um, Scotty one day won 20 grander over Lane Dickin. Randy Folk over Kenny Underwood, the aforementioned mm-hmm. Kenny Underwood on day two. I've never heard of any of these finalists. Yeah, yes. uh, Jake Cuff. The nobody nationals. <laughs> yeah, right. Jake Jr. <laughs> with the, the closer 10 grander over Brian Folk. And in the dragster race, it was Jeffrey Maggart over John LaBoost Jr. As I mentioned, um, just another year in what felt like the decade of Scotty. Uh, he claimed back-to-back $10,000 race wins at the Rocket City Nationals, which is at Huntsville. Um, just among what was seemingly double-digit huge bracket race wins during that season and every season in the 2000s for Scotty. Um, this was the year you brought this up, and I had completely forgotten about this event, but this was the year of 
the Pro Bracket Masters Championship. And for some of you, I'm really jogging the memory there, but this was set to be a Danny Sons production. This was something that he dreamt up. It was gonna be held at South Georgia. It was going to be in their normal like winter series date, first weekend of November or something like that to kind of kick off the winter series. And I was trying to remember the details. I actually had one of, you know, he, a la George Howard's initial million, anybody that seemed interested in the Pro Bracket Masters got a folder, you know, with the, the mm -hmm. specific details of it. And um, I still had that folder for the longest time. If I still do, I, I, I don't know where it is, but it was about securing sponsorship and backing to get into this race. But if memory serves, it was a guaranteed million dollars to win with a $10,000 entry fee, or perhaps it was a guaranteed $500,000 to win. Actually, I thought it was 400,000 okay. guaranteed. But, that sounds but, right. But, but, but you're right on the entry fee, $10,000. And and yes, it, it included detailed things of how you might sell sponsorships, knowing that there was almost nobody at that time that was willing to cough up 10,000 of their own. It was how you could form a partnership, how you could solicit companies, you know, anything you could do to, to raise that kind of money. And you think about how ambitious that was, even though 2006 was the year before the, the real estate crash, you know, the economy was rolling along pretty good. The entry fee for the million at that point was still only 2000. And, you know, at the time you probably had 250 or so guys willing to cough that up. Mm -hmm. I think it was pretty ambitious to think that you would get anywhere near the necessary number of guys to, uh, to post 10 grand. You know, even today, you look at some of the big events we have now, you've got a $3,000 entry fee. And I think that, maybe causes some guys to, to take a look back and see what they're doing. Sure. 15 um, years later. Yeah. 10,000. That's, you know, it works for the world series of poker. I'm not sure if bracket racing is there. Even 15 years later, are we there yet? I'm, I'm not sure. No, probably not. And, and the, uh, no, and that's one thing you could say for Danny, like he was always a swing for the fences guy and a lot of it worked. This one didn't. I think they had like six entries. You know, it just never really yeah. got traction. Ended up there was a there was a race that weekend uh, at South Georgia, and I believe it. Well, I know it was the final Drag Race Chevelle Series race of the year, but it was obviously not the the Pro Bracket Masters as it was initially mm -hmm. intended. Um, two fifty granders that season, in addition to the hundred grander at Memphis, and I believe there were just two. I, I think the Ultimate sixty four started in 07, but I may be wrong on that. But, well, have to wait till next week to find out. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we will get to that. <laughs> but the two that stand out to me just because, as I said personally, uh, 2006 was all about racing for me and uh, cultivated the, the relationship that I talked about a little bit uh, last week with Jason Lynch, where Jason and I were racing together quite a bit. You know, at this point, I, I had a, a dragster of my own, so I wasn't uh, using his stuff necessarily, but we were traveling together a lot. First 50 grand of the year, Farmington, North Carolina. And I don't really remember all the details. I remember we had two cars in Jason's rig or the, at the time. And neither one of us, if memory serves, could really afford to be there. Like it was a stretch. And, um, and Jason rolls to the final of the 50 grand or opposite Chuck Martin. And I'll, I'm going to take some credit here, which I'm going to overblow it, obviously. But it's my story, right? As, as coaching through these two events. The, so, the floor is all yours. Jason. Jason is in the final with Chuck Martin and they negotiate their split and he comes back to the car prior to the final and you can just tell like he's beaming he's like and he even says something to me he's like, whatever the numbers were I don't remember at this point he's like man no matter what I got 20 grand coming you know like 
we're going to eat this week. We can go race wherever we want next week. You know, I mean, that's all, all that we care about. So, man, that's awesome. That's awesome. But I can just tell, like, he's getting in the car, and he is just happy to be there. And I'm like, man, I know that they're still racing for, like, 10 grand in the final. So I, I, he's got his helmet on about ready to, to start up and pull in the water, and I leaned down in. I said, hey, man, this is awesome. You got, you got 20 grand no matter what. But when's the next time that you're going to stage one round to win another 10? And I just walked away. And he just got this fear in the head like, oh, you know, and he ends up winning. So gives me some credit for that. Well, then fast forward. Um, it's that was at races in April, if I remember correctly. Fast forward to August. So three, four months later, final of the 50 there. Jason again rolls through and he, he runs Jake Coffin Jr. in the final. And this one was hilarious because Jason had bought. Um, it was Nick Bolt's old car. We called it the Barney car. It was this god-awful purple and yellow undercover car. Nick had won the world championship in top drag during it, I believe. And uh, they, Jason, like, bought it at the track. I think they delivered it to him there without a motor in it. And we just kind of plotted along putting a motor in. Well, it never went down the racetrack until the morning of the 50. was his first time trial. And then, of course, he goes on to win the 50. But coming into the final with Jag, Jason had just been – brutal like awful I, I think he was two or three rounds where he's 40 or worse on the tree and, and typical jason lynch like getting away with him holding a ton making people look dumb, whatever right so i leaned down in the in the cockpit before the final i'm like hey man great job but i pointed at jag and i go but you are not gonna let go 40 and beat him so you need to get your bleep together right now and then jag flinched and was 70 in the final jason was good <laughs> but in the end i was completely wrong he could have been 40 and one <laughs> so I'm surprised he didn't say to you, when's the next time you're going to stage for 10 grand? He said, oh, three, three months later, we're going to do this again. <laughs> and I would, I would imagine the split for that 50 was, was probably comparable to what, uh, what he'd had earlier in the year. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, okay. So this was the year we talked a little bit, um, last week about the, the, the B&M series kind of dwindling down and the, and the Drag Race Results series kind of taking over as a, as a national point series. In 05, it was the Scotty Richardson show. In 06, um, it was actually, <laughs> this, was, this was my deal. Like, this was my focus for the season was I, they, they put this series together. It was basically a nationwide bracket series. The year-end points fund was huge. It was a turnkey dragster to win the Super Pro Championship. And I committed to making a run at it. And at some point earlier in the season, I'd had some success. I'm like, I got a shot. I'm all in. And uh, once race, I was leading most of the, the year. I remember that much. And prior, it was, so it had been um, September, October. I remember it was just prior to the million because I think we were at Holly Springs for a race that led up to the million at Memphis. And Rustin Mays won a race in Noble, Oklahoma that put him within striking distance of me. And at that time, Rustin's in his late teens. I mean, he's a young, young kid. Sure. And um, the upcoming schedule, I don't even remember exactly how the points shook out, but I think I could only claim points at one more race, and it had to be a home division race. I don't remember how it all shook out. But there was a race coming up in Tucson, Arizona. And it was like two $2,500 to win races. Like there's, But I knew that Rustin would probably go because, you know, they're in Texas. Mm -hmm. And the one trip that I had had to Tucson previously, I had just run over the field. And I would thought, man, if he goes there, he is going to dominate. Like he's going to win that race. And then he's going to be ahead. Like I can't let that happen. So one thing leads to another. I actually leave the million, sold my motorhome on like Tuesday, 
So I hop in a dually with a 28-foot trailer and drive from Woodville, Alabama to Tucson, Arizona. And I got, I'm, I'm almost 100% certain. I couldn't even earn points at the race. I just wanted to make sure Rustin didn't win. I thought, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. So I drive across the country to run a race that if I win, I don't pay for the trip, right? It's 2,500 bucks to win the race. And as it ends up, on the, on the weekend, I was in three finals. I lost all of them. I didn't pay for the trip. And I, at the time, you could double enter. I chased Rustin all over the place, right? Just trying to hook him every round. The one round that I hooked him, he put the X number on so it didn't count for points. I win. Well, I can't run him. I can't run him. I can't run him. Not to say that I would have beat him, but I couldn't hook him, and it was frustrating. So we get down to three cars, and it was me, Rustin, and Tony Fuller. And Rustin had the bye. Uh, I get past Tony. I'm running Rustin in the final. And I'm like, I got it. I mean, he's already got enough points. I think he's ahead of me, but I got to minimize the damages. He beats me in the final. Great. So I made this trip out here to lose to the guy that I'm supposed to beat. That was epic, right? And then I, I think I runnered up both classes the next day. So whatever. Long trip to Tucson to no avail. So it all comes down to the final race at South Georgia, and which was the one race that I could earn points at. And I don't remember how it all shook down, but on the last day, it was early in the race. I think it was second round. Rustin's out. I have to win that round. We are tied, but I would lose the tiebreaker. And I draw this guy. He's probably watching. Like, I don't know. I have any idea who he was, but it was like a, it looked like Swamp Rat 3. I mean, he drug it out of Garland's museum, right? I'm like, man, if you could ever have a good draw in this situation, this is it. And, uh, and I turn it red, like not close to being green, like seventh hour red. And it's just the most devastating loss of my entire career. Because A, there's so much on the line. B, I'm pretty sure I'm going to, like, you can't have a better draw. And the guy made an awful run. And I just, looking back, like, I learned so much from that whole scenario and the pressure of it and how I approached it and how, how different the feeling was. And then, like, the, the devastation of it would just stick with you, man. It, it's, I think about it now and get, it's like a gut punch, you know. It's, uh, it's something else. And I, I guess, you know, in retrospect, it's sort of the, um, what do they say, the, the fire that strengthens iron or something like that. Like, yeah, I, I, character building, I believe, is what they call yeah, it. Yeah, sure, right. Well, my, my father used to say experience is what you get when you don't get what you want, right? That's, yeah. And Rustin was obviously extremely deserving. He's gone on to have a great career since, but that's one of the most – probably well, one of the most single heartbreaking round of my career so yeah when i go back on uh on 2006 and when i look back at it like this i'm like man what's rough <laughs> <laughs> so and i've got another one as we come up but the the million that year which i kind of brazed over and all of that uh mm -hmm. we we touched on this real briefly last week in 05 it was jeff rooks winning the million you know yes. from relative obscurity and then he when he really I mean, you make a name for yourself by winning a million, but you back it up and really get everybody's attention. He came back the very next year all the way to the final, ended up losing to Greg Sesti in the final. But I think the story, even more so than Greg's win, was Rooks going back to back. Sure. And you have to wonder, and maybe you could speak to this because of the success you've had, when you get to a final like that, especially when you win it, and I mean, not only are you looking at a life-changing payout, but does it change your perspective going into future events? Are you maybe less nervous when you're the next time you're racing for big dollars, especially when you get down to the, the late rounds, number one, you know what to expect. And secondly, is there just a calmness there because you've been there, you know, you can do it. Uh, what, what, what's your thought process when you go back to uh, the late rounds of another event like that? 
think it can work both ways depending on the, the individual because on one hand, yeah, like you know how all of that feels and you know that, forget thinking you can do it, you know that you're capable of doing mm -hmm. it, right? But on the flip side, I, I think run, uh, I, I think you run into just as often is there's almost an expectation of, man, you set the bar so high, like you can't top that, you know, and, and there's almost an expect expectation to get back. Now, Jeff specifically, just because we were pretty close. He was my neighbor when I lived mm -hmm. in Alabama and he owned Sand Mountain Dragway, which was basically my home track at the time. And his outlook on that was so awesome because literally for years there, not necessarily in that time, like there were years where he just went to the million. That was the only race he went to all year and he would show out like that dude was in more million dollar race splits per entries than anybody right and he's always yeah. seemed to be down there in the in the money and even at that time he might have gotten out half a dozen times a year and he was just able to turn it on like that race was always it was the first thing on the calendar every year like we're gonna build our year around this because mm -hmm. we're gonna go to this and i'm gonna win and that was just his outlook he's like I, that's the race i'm gonna show up and i'm gonna be i'm gonna be jeff rooks and he was yeah. year after year and it you would even like just his whole personality would change that week it was like as another dude and he was just locked in it, it's pretty incredible to watch I'm, I'm sure there's a lot to be said for any individual who can put, put the money part aside because realistically, it's it's no more difficult to win the million than it is to win a twelve hundred dollar bracket race at most home tracks. The only real difference is the size of the check. So if you're someone, you know, either you're someone of means where the money doesn't mean that much to you, and we've seen a little bit of that. Some of the, you know, some of the million dollar race winners are quite well off. Um, or if you just have the mentality of, I can I can lock that out. I'm not worried about what effect this might have on me financially and just focus on the task at hand. Um, I think there's probably a real art to that. And uh, you know, maybe for some people it comes naturally. Um, for, for others, it's probably an acquired thing. And there might even be others who, who never quite get over that hump of to get down there and get really nervous when you think, wow, that this round could be worth 20, 30, 40, 50,000. Um, That's one area where I do think coming back after maybe not even necessarily winning, but being a part of that split conversation and just realizing what it feels like to stage for one round for 20 grand, 40 grand, whatever, you know what I mean? Like that's just a different feeling that you can't prepare yourself for until you do it. And from that aspect, I do think the experience of having been there close is a, is a pretty significant advantage. Sure. Um, I think where else I was going to, Oh, I was going to, I was going to wrap this around because I going back to that Dragos results series. So Earlier that summer is the only time I've ever been to Maple Grove to, to Reading, which is an awesome place. Like it was probably, I, I don't remember a whole lot about it. It was one of my favorite, my favorite racetracks I've ever been to, but I flew in to, to run a drag race results race. And I was driving one of Chris Reynolds cars, Chris from uh, Delaware. And Chris wasn't even there. Spanky, Chris Wilson was there and, uh, and had everything set up for me and kind of took me under his, under his wing. But, and I won one of the early days and, I think it was a three-day race. Maybe I won Friday. And so Sunday, somehow or another, I end up in two cars, two of Chris's dragsters, which are meticulous, you know, super un unbelievable race cars. It was a quarter mile. I was having a blast. And I was running my rental car in Footbreak or Sportsman or whatever they called it. So it's one of, I'll never forget this for a number of reasons, but I, I'm rolling through competition in all three of these. And I'm in the semifinals in everything. So I'm in the semis of Sportsman in the rental car. 
and I'm two of the four left in Super Pro and, and Chris's two dragsters. And I come up for the run in the rental car, and I don't even remember what the rental car was, but I could put both feet on the floor, right? On a stage. So I'm deep stage, foot on the floor, uh, brake, brake foot on the floor, gas foot on the floor, and it would basically like go on a two step, like it was on a governor, and it would hold there. So I'd just let go of the brake pedal on the third, and I'd, whatever, I had it figured out. So I'm running, I was running Andy Anderson, a lot of you know Andy, in the semifinals, and he's like a 10 second car where we're both going deep. And at the time, they didn't like honor deep staging and everywhere that I went, they didn't honor deep staging and they, and they would just leave auto start on. So I don't feel like I'm doing anything wrong to Andy to go ahead and get in deep. Cause I'm like eight seconds slower than he is. So I figure like he's got plenty of time to get deep. Right. Mm -hmm. So I get deep. And as soon as he shallow stages, I, I'm, I would get below like a visor just to where, right. cause I was worried about his stage ball or his pre-stage ball going off and messing mm -hmm. me up. So I'm like, I'll get below that. And so I, I put both feet on the floor and the tree doesn't come and the tree doesn't come and the tree doesn't come and the tree doesn't come. And I'm like, what in the world? Well, they were holding it for him to actually get deep. So I kind of tuck under and I see that he's not deep and I'm like, all right. So I just left my foot on the floor. Well, literally my tree starts down and it's like the second bulb comes on and the rental car goes into limp mode because oh, no. I've had both feet on the floor for, for <laughs> seconds or whatever, right? And so it triggers something. So I idle down the track and I lose. I come back. I drive to the staging lanes in the first dragster and the other two are already there waiting for me. And Spanky stops me at the back of the lanes and he's like, hey, if you just, I think they were back to back in whatever lane. He's like, if you just pull in behind them, you run yourself and get one to the final. And I'm like, that ain't, I ain't running myself. That, no, like I can't, I'm going right, right. to run myself in the final. What are you talking about, right? <laughs> so I just kind of ignore him and pull around beside uh, Jeff Palmer. And we run and whatever, I feel good on the tree. I catch him, I roll him through. I'm like, man, my wind light doesn't fall. Man, I thought I did everything right there. You know, it felt one of those runs where you felt like you killed plenty and you got there first. I get the time slip and what I had like a hundredth and a half on the tree and um, something blew through the, the finish line. So I'm, I got a thousand foot time and then I'm like a second under, right? So we've got a rerun and I'm like, I'm pretty, I'm 90, Five percent sure that I won that round but what are you gonna do right you got to rerun mm -hmm. so I come back to the lanes I hop in the other car for the other semifinal I get my tail kicked I come back for the rerun I lose again so I lost I essentially watched the wrong wind light come on four times in a matter of literally like 15 minutes and then the funniest thing which is not funny at all but in 15 years removed the funniest thing about it is that I lose the, the ultimate championship on a tiebreaker and I'm talking literally, I just told you how much of a gut punch it was to turn it red at South Georgia. Literally 10 minutes after I'm sitting in the pits, somewhere between like crying and throwing up and I get a text message from Spanky. Told you you should have run yourself before. <laughs> Thanks buddy. <laughs> so anyway, that's my Maple Grove story. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to the, the, the the thing I think last year running uh, an MRA in St. Louis, uh, I had three three red lights within 28 minutes, and and at about minute 38, I was out the gate headed home, and and, and none of them were close. You know, you talk about 007. I would happily have taken a 007. They, they, these were all far more embarrassing. And <laughs> I think nothing's more frustrating when you tell yourself, "All right, dummy, don't do that again," and then you pull right around and you do it again, and then you do it again, and um, it just it, it's probably one of many reasons why I'll never be a world-class bracket racer but uh, I think at least on that uh, to that end I can relate <laughs> well there's something to be said for not being like you know way red and then coming back and being too honored you know 
You, you kept going for it. The aggressiveness is good, Kevin. Uh, okay. Well, I'm going to take your word for that. <laughs> uh, all right. So, uh, Moroso 5A, this was the big one. This was the 25th anniversary, Moroso. Uh, this is one that I remember really well just because the atmosphere down there was so incredible. Uh, mm -hmm. Those that, that may not remember, um, they got together. It was, it was two parts. It was everybody that had been to every Moroso, which was actually a pretty significant group. Of yeah, about a dozen people at that point, I believe. Yeah, yeah which 24 years of it. Mm -hmm. And that, that photo on the starting line is epic because it is a, a who's who of, That's if true. you say it was a dozen people, it was a dozen Hall of Famers, right? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then there was a special race within a race for those guys, I believe, were mm -hmm. automatically entered into it, as well as anyone who was on the premises who had won a day at Moroso over the course of those 24 years. And Correct. just the electricity and the atmosphere around that event, really that whole week was pretty mm -hmm. incredible. And yeah. it was the that might have been the last year. That might have been the last year that I went to Moroso, just because living in California was a little more difficult to get there year after year. But I, I'd been to the previous twenty-four. Was not going to miss it. You know, I, I have somewhere. I've got a fifteen-year jacket, and I believe I've got the twenty-five-year jacket. And um, the, the, those are two most prized possessions that I have. Um, and, and yes, to your point, that was really an amazing event, and, and it kind of—I don't want to say the beginning of the end, but yeah, it was close, it, it right? Was pro yeah, pro probably just just a nice um, nice stamp on what had been really an, an amazing run. You know, pro arguably the most significant event in, in racket racing history, I think. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, and I believe that might have been the last year on the old Moroso. I'm almost certain that was still the old layout and facility sure, before, sure. They but, before it became Palm Beach Dragway. And, right. Yeah. And it was it was the Jag show. It was a it was a Jag Coughlin Jr. dominant performance. Mm -hmm. um, because I believe it ended, I think that that race of champions was spread out over a couple of days, yep. but the culmination of that, he won the, the runoff and won the 10 grander on the exact same day, which was mm -hmm. just against that field. Like, I mean, it's no surprise just from Jay Coughlin Jr., but it was yeah. quite the accomplishment. Sure. Other winners from the weekend, Steve Micus. There's a, mm -hmm. I, I don't want to say a name from the past because it was just a few years ago that Steve was, barnstorm in the country and, and, and winning everywhere. But uh, Steve was one of the winners at Moroso that year. My buddy Bones won, I believe it was the first day that year. And I think we had, or technically the second day, I believe it had rained the first day and rolled over to be a 20 grander, which was. Yeah, I, th I think, I think that's how it became 20 grand. Yes. And, uh, mm -hmm. and Jack Steck was the other winner. And again, I talked about the, the heartbreak of, of my personal 2006 season. So we had the, mm -hmm. the Dragger's results championship, the, the, four losses and 20 minutes at, at Reading. Moroso, for everyone really of my generation, like it's on a pedestal. It was the race I read about growing up. I, I read a lot of your stories about it growing up, right? It was the event. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I, it wasn't the first time that I'd been to Moroso, but it was the first time that I got a taste of actually having success there. And, and the day that Jag dominated everything, I was down to it was three or four cars in the 10 grander and Jeg was on the other side. I don't remember he had the buyer had to run somebody, but on my run in the semis, I staged and the trans brake shorted out. And like mm -hmm. I rolled through the beams and I just remember coming back. Granted, this is two weeks after the, the South Georgia fiasco. Right. And I'm like, mm -hmm. this sport is stupid. <laughs> just over it. It's funny now. Mm -hmm. Cause I go, I look back on 2006, like, yeah, it was a pretty good year. And I, I read through this and it's just got me depressed. 
<laughs> All right, so that's the news that is news as it pertains to 2006. We talked a little bit of um, pop culture. We talked about the NHRA. Uh, professional ranks and sportsman ranks touched on IHRA a little bit of big dollar bracket racing Kevin is there anything that sticks out to you that we may have missed no I think I think we've we've covered it a lot and again I, I guess we, when you look back we didn't know the storm that was coming obviously towards the end of 07 you had the, the real estate crash that you know sort of put the country into a bit of a tailspin for for a couple of years at least um so maybe at that point, we didn't realize how good we had it as far as strong car counts at places like the Million. And you know, now granted, the premier bracket events have always seemed to hold their own, even in troubled times, which, which actually, you know, moving to today's deal, you know, hopefully that holds true, where once we get back to racing, car counts will continue to still be strong. Um, you know, but, but, but again, those, you could definitely count 2006 as the good old days as far as the economy, good car counts across the board. A lot of places to race. Um, you know, again, we, we we didn't know the storm clouds that were brewing, but um, you know, we managed to get through all that. Uh, a couple quick closeouts as we go. Like I say, that kind of puts the wraps on 2006. We'll be back uh, next week with 2007. Kevin, is that where we're going? Sure. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. We'll touch on 2007. So join us again, same time, same place next Thursday. I'll be back tomorrow with our normal Friday story time. Uh, again, noon Eastern time, 11 central. Um, this week's guest will be Hank Mulligan. And for those of you that know Hank, uh, who knows what is going to be said uh, a, a day from today, but I can pretty much guarantee you that it will be entertaining. So join me for that. Uh, I did want to close this out. Jed and I brought this up on the podcast, but I saw Ryan Gleghorn made a, a comment real early on in this. Um, we talked how there was a, a lot of optimism for the coming weeks and how some of or the majority of that seems premature as it comes to racing. One race, one event that is happening uh, this weekend at Ardmore, it promises to be a, um, Obviously, the, the guidelines in Oklahoma are, are relaxed enough to allow this to happen. And uh, Will Carroll and Seth at Ardmore putting together what I think promises to be just from the hub, the, the hubbub on, uh, on social media, one of the best attended bracket events ever. It seems like everyone's going to converge on Ardmore. Right. So interesting to see how that goes. And, and obviously, uh, those of you that are headed that way, have fun and be safe. And, uh, and I hope that that goes as well as possible and, and everybody kind of gets is, is that your way of saying you're not going to Ardmore? No, I, I don't. I don't even have anything ready to go if, if, if I want well, I'm, sure, I'm sure someone would, would spot you a car if you need it. <laughs> possibly so. Possibly so. But I, that'll be fun to watch from afar. And then Jed and I brought it up on, uh, on the podcast as well. But uh, on, a, on a sadder note, just wanted to, to send out thoughts and prayers to the Smith and the Helton families two um, yeah. icons and, and Hall of Famers in our sport, uh, Mike Smith and uh, down in Alabama and, uh, and Randy Helton up in Ohio that, uh, that passed away over the course of the last week. So just wanted to let you guys know that, uh, that we're thinking of you and sending our yeah. best wishes. Yeah. I, I actually, you know, we, we talk about, we have a lot of stories from Moroso and, you know, I, I knew, knew Mike for probably 30 years and, and Mike and I spent a lot of time at races like Moroso. He was a lot of fun. We played a lot of poker late into the night, early into the mornings. And yeah, he was really a prince of a guy. And um, that, that was tough news to wake up to this week. Yeah, agreed. I, uh, yeah, I, I said my piece uh, on, on the podcast, but yeah, Mike's going to be missed. He was just uh, 
it's a genuine guy like he man a few words but once you once you once he let you in like he, that dude helped everybody at the racetrack you know and yeah, cr- crack his pocket kings for a big pot and he was not a man of few words <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'd like to see that too. <laughs> so, all right kevin well thank you again for joining us today we'll be back next week Appreciate you guys uh, being a part of this, and especially those of you who stuck around. We run, we ran a little bit long today, but uh, we had some fun stuff that we wanted. Yeah, th- th- this is fun. Let's keep it going, and uh, we'll uh, we'll start uh, doing some research on 2007, and be back next week. Sounds good. Thanks, Kevin. Perfect. You bet. Take care. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.